As our choir is taking their seats, I want to let you know, as you already heard, we're talking more about community today and friending. And so if you feel led and convicted by the Holy Spirit, you want to move up a little closer, there's nothing magical about the first seven rows here. You can join the choir and they'd appreciate it too. And I promise it won't distract me or bother me a bit. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable unto you. Amen. Kim was up early on a cold April Sunday morning in Cleveland. She hadn't gotten much sleep the night before either due to the weeping of her mother and sister as they mourned their father and husband's, the anniversary of his death. But Kim hadn't been crying much at all the night before. You see, Kim didn't know her father. He had died before she was born. But what was worse, she also was worried that he didn't know of her either. You see, she had been born eight months before her father, or after her father had died. So she was concerned that he may not have known that she was coming along or going to be born at all. But she did know her father was a farmer back in Vietnam. He loved to work the soil. And so now that she and her family lived in the inner city of Cleveland, there was no place to own a farm or even have much of a garden at all. But she knew growing a garden would honor her father. And that was one way that she could be close to him. So early that morning, she had woken up tiptoed in her kitchen, filled her thermos full of water, grabbed a big spoon and a handful of dried limas, and quietly made her way out of her apartment and down the street to a vacant lot, a lot that had been filled with trash and debris and leftover old furniture and appliances that no one wanted before. You can imagine it was a pretty ugly sight. But there, she scouted out a place where she could find and conceal a place where she was going to plant her limas. It was behind an old refrigerator. So there she took her spoon and dug in the cold April soil enough to make holes for each of the limas. And there she dropped them in, covered them with the soil, and then watered with the water in her thermos. She then pledged to her that she would visit that every day, watering and caring for those plants as a way to honor her father. She would make him proud. But what she didn't realize was that she was about to start a movement of sorts in that neighborhood. She didn't know that a neighbor, a nosy neighbor named Anna, who lived in an apartment across from the vacant lot, was watching her that morning. Anna was frail, uh, lonely, so she spent a lot of her time looking out her window. She saw what Kim was up to, but she didn't know what she was doing. She thought maybe she was up to no good or concealing something. So after a few days of of Kim coming to the lot, she got curious and had to know what she was doing. So one day she went out and dug up Kim's lima plants. But when she realized they were plants, that's all they were, she realized what she had done and called on the only acquaintance she had for help. His name was Wendell. Wendell lived below Anna and had lost his only son to the violence of the city streets and then his wife to an automobile accident. 
phone call scared him. It's how he got the news about both his son and his wife. He kept to himself, except when he was working as a janitor in the local school or checking occasionally on his neighbor, Anna. Naturally, her call jarred him, and he came running to her apartment expecting the worst. But what he found was she simply wanted him to go out and check on Kim's plants, the young girl's plants. Well, he was a little aggravated by that, but he agreed to go out. And what he found amazed him, because Kim had planted these plants way too early in the season. So the fact that they had sprouted up, even though they were dry, he was amazed. And so he knew what to do. He, was a, he grew up in a farm in Kentucky. So he mounded all the dirt around each of the plants together and created a mound, and then watered them. Inspired by what he had seen, he committed to himself that instead of always dwelling on the past and the heartache, that he would use the time he had, his free time, to do something to give back. And so he scouted out a place also in that lot that got good sunlight and started to plan his own garden. And thus starts a pattern in Paul Fleischman's book, short book, entitled Seed Folks. One by one, people in this densely populated city block, who are otherwise anonymous and separated by their differences, begin to come together as they see their neighbors planting their little garden plots in a lot until at that time had been defined as forgotten and a blight. You know, it's the same way that community had been defined by people around them. Just like the lot was forgotten, it was a throwaway place in the city, a point that people tried to avoid or not look at, so felt many of its residents about themselves. They thought, what do I have to contribute? Who cares about me? Yet this once ugly lot in one summer transforms not just the aesthetics of the street, but the lives of everyone who encounters it. Where there was only emptiness and distance before the garden, there now exists a close-knit community where neighbors are known and their creativity empowered. The transformation of the neighborhood can also serve as a metaphor for the kind of community the church is called to create through the lordship of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. So today we continue our friending series. Over the first two weeks, we focus on the importance of friendship. We have stated that meaningful friendships are extremely important, bringing joy and purpose to all our lives. We've also discussed how close friendships are harder to come by these days and are fewer in number. Now we've accredited this to the increase in work hours, sometimes time spent in commute, divorce, and the rise of social media as major, major players. Never have we been more connected, but for many, more alone. Our series has stressed the importance of, of in-person, face-to-face friendship that requires intentionality. And not just any friend, but friends who are sacrificial, who can speak honestly to you, calling out the best in you, and who reflect Christ in your relationships. Developing these friendships require that we carve out time from our work week, our cell phones, and our TV to find activities that promote knowing and caring for each other. Such friendships make a lasting difference, like we've learned the last couple of weeks. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Such friendships are also found by investing your time in the right kind of community. 
So today we cast our friendship net a little wider as we focus on our need to belong to a community. People really long to belong to something, something that's bigger than them and can give them definition and purpose. Many times this belonging gives us our identity and helps us answer the question, who am I really? There are many examples of community, but for the sake of time, I'm going to just offer one that I kind of resonate with, and that's sports. Sports gives many people a place to belong. See, I could wear a Red Sox cap, and I should have brought it with me. I could wear a Red Sox cap anywhere on any day, and I can get a reaction, both good or bad. And I get comments from fellow fans who I've never met before, and we can share in the jubilation of a winning season or the dejection, like this year, of a losing one. And of course, we all will share our disdain of the New York Yankees. Sorry, John. I know, John, you got baptized as a Yankees fan, but we've talked about that. <laughs> we've started referring to such sports allegiances as belonging to a nation, like Red Sox Nation or Redskins Nation. The point is, communities give people an identity and meaning. People like to feel as though they fit in and belong to somewhere or to something. And people will go to great lengths to fit in and prove they belong. So you better believe that communities can be very powerful in people's lives for both good and for bad. If you remember back with me a few years ago in spring of 2011, many of us were appalled when in April of 2011, two Dodgers fans attending opening day in Los Angeles attacked a San Francisco Giants fan. You know, these are big, bitter rivals too and left him hospitalized with a traumatic brain injury that he still deals with today. That is the power of belonging. We see this play out in all kinds of communities. Prove that you belong. Prove that you are worthy. Today we are recognizing college students. So college students, as you begin your college career or you return to your campuses, there will be a strong personal tug to find a group to belong to and to prove that you fit in. I know this from personal experience. See, I remember as a child, my parents would have their college friends over and they'd get together with them often. And they still do this. What I remember from that is I wanted the same thing once I went to college. Good friendships that I could call on for the rest of my life. So when I did go to college my freshman year, I probably put as much stress on building those important relationships as I did in succeeding in the classroom. That might be true for you, too, whether at school or at work or in a new neighborhood. So what resulted for me was pledging a fraternity at the end of my freshman year. And the desire to belong to any kind of community compromised to one degree or another the person that I was, was and the person I was becoming. Now, I'm thankful for my time in my fraternity, but I didn't find my lasting relationships there. In large part, this was part due to my wise parents who, when they found out at the beginning of my junior year I wanted to move on a, to an off-campus apartment with some fraternity brothers, said, no, nah, you're not going to do that. And I listened. Instead, I found myself back on campus, a junior with a freshman as a roommate. This freshman knew the kind of community he was looking for, though, and he helped me find new relationships and friendships through Fellowship of Christian Athletes and a local church that helped give shape to the person I am today. While I didn't completely disengage with my fraternity, I recognized that I wasn't growing in my relationship with God. 
Rather, I was conforming to a fairly typical college existence. But God works in a variety of ways. And through the power and the prayer of others, through my accepting of my parents' wisdom, and being open to new possibilities, I was introduced into a community that jump-started my relationship with God, discipled my growth, provided opportunities for missions and service, developed close friendships, and ultimately played a role in my calling to the ministry. You see, the trajectory of my life changed when the community I was primarily associated with changed. So, as it is with friendships, it is true with community as well. Show me your communities, and I'll show you your future. College students, it's not whether you pledge a fraternity or are a member of an honor society. The dangers of sin are everywhere, sometimes even in the church. What matters is that you, all, that you know yourself and that you do find a community that encourages you to be the full person God has created you to be. If you ever find yourself trying to prove that you belong or are a part of a community that goes counter to what you know to be true of yourself and what you know God has created you to be, then you need to seriously question whether that group is the kind that will help you live into your God-given identity and truly exists for the common good for others. So, what is community? Well, I went to the dictionary, like we so often do, and I found a number of definitions, but three, I think, that are important for us today. Bear with me, since we don't have a projection to throw these up, because sometimes you have to think about them. I'll read them slowly. The first definition is this, a social group of any size whose members reside in a specific locality, share government, and often have a common cultural and historical heritage. I think we can all agree with that one. Another definition of community is this, a social, religious, occupational, or other group sharing common characteristics or interests and perceiving itself as distinct in some respect from the larger society within which it exists. Something sets him apart from everything else. And the third definition is a little shorter. A third definition of community is a group of men or women leading a common life according to a rule. Now I believe most people think of definition number one when they think of community. Community to most is where we live, or where we work, or a history we share. Now, it's the most common, but it's also the kind that asks the least of us and doesn't really allow individuals to know and to care for each other in the fullest. Israel, and by extension, the early church, could find its community in definition number two. Again, that's a social and religious community that was distinct in many respects from the larger society. In Exodus 19, God, when giving Moses his command, said this, You shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And Peter, writing to the early church, echoed Moses by telling the early church and Christians that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To review, 
To be a priest means that you are to share the values and desires of the person that you represent. In this case, it's God. Priests speak on behalf of God. And then to be holy means to be set apart, to be different, to stick out, for us to be salt and light. But for Christians today, our priestliness and our holiness are compromised unless we are able to live up to a community definition number three, becoming a people who lead a common life according to a rule. What rule is that, you may ask? Well, Jesus gives it to us in John chapter 15 and also in 1 John. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. So our communal role as Christians then is to love one another as Christ has loved us. Jesus here has upped the ante. He has increased the responsibility on us exponentially. Jesus shows us what love really is by always putting God's agenda ahead of his own interest. And as it turns out, God's agenda is one that seeks to heal the hurting, give belonging to the lonely, and bring wholeness to all creation. It's an agenda that required Jesus to lay down his life for those he came to save, first through serving them, and then through the ultimate sacrifice, death on a cross. It is also God's desire that through the cross, we begin to build a community of people committed to live for one another and for the world in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus often spoke about this kind of community, particularly in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. He called it the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a new order where each person exists to continue God's agenda and care for and encourage others. We don't live for ourselves in this community, yet... Paradoxically, in such a community, we see that in giving of ourselves, we begin to live. We find that this is what we are made for, to love and serve others the same way that Jesus did. Paul echoes this in his letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 13, which is commonly known as the love chapter, we hear it in weddings, is primarily about communities like ours, sharing life together in God's new order. You see, we can be as prophetic and as holy as ever, but without showing love to one another, we are just simply a bunch of noise. So now it's our turn, in our own time, in our own corner of the world, to live out the same good news to the people around us. The sick are healed, the blind can see, and the favor of the Lord is on a community whose desire it is to be like Jesus. Such a community will grab people's attention for its strangeness, its oddness, its peculiarness. Flannery O'Connor's well-known quip about salvation is fitting here. She says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. 
because it's so unlike the mantra of the world. And for most, this is refreshingly good news. So, how can a group of sinners, saved by God's good grace in Jesus, live in a community that makes a lasting difference for one another and for the world? Five quick ideas just to get ourselves thinking. Find it in John's teaching and, of course, in Jesus' life. Number one, at best, at our best, we model real love. We love others not because of what we can gain from others, but because of what God has done for us. We didn't earn God's love. We can't. So we cannot demand anything in return for our love shown to others. And that's what love is anyway. Loving someone when there is no good evidence to do so. Except that we know that the other person is a child of God created in God's image. This is indeed hard work, but it is a sign of God's grace in our lives. Second of all, we are humble. We know and show love not because we're so pious, not because we're so good, but because God's grace is given to us. We know the life we have been given, we had nothing to do with it, but rather is a gift. We want to share that gift. Now, others may be skeptical of this gift, of this love that we want to share, and they may wonder, well, what is it? what's in it for you? But we shouldn't be surprised by such a reaction. That's the way of the world. Rather, we have to be patient in sharing God's love. Love has nothing to do with quick fixes. Love is in the trenches for the long haul. Number three, another reason, another idea is our love does not coerce. There is no fear in love. People should feel welcome and at home in our community, community just as they are. This also calls for patience. Our culture, based on fast results, will be confused at a community that doesn't base its worth on nickels and noses, but instead on the willingness of its people to give themselves away. Fourth, we show radical welcome and we forgive those who have wronged us. One recent sign of God's community was seen earlier this summer in Charleston, South Carolina. Instead of protests, sometimes violent, that erupted after recent deaths, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston and its members also forgave the gunman who took nine of their own while in Bible study, even though the killing was racially motivated and based on hate. This led some media commentators to call the people of Emmanuel the best of what America has to offer. And while this may be, it was not their Americanness that created such an amazing forgiveness. Rather, it was their identity as people of God who practiced the sign of redemption. One of those signs being forgiving others. You see, belonging to a redemptive body, like ours, begets redemptive action. A final marker of Christian community is our Les Gois de Terror, or the taste of a place. Terror is a foodie term and is the combination of natural factors like soil, water, height above sea level, vegetation, and other factors when you plant a vegetable. And then you combine that with human ones like tradition, practice, and cultivation. And those together give unique flavor and character to each small agricultural locality and the food that is grown there. Thus, a tomato sauce will taste different in a small town in Italy than it would from a small farm in Virginia. 
Have you thought about taste before? Taste is probably our most intimate sense. Tasting what enters our mouth and dissolves in our tongue also dissolves a barrier between me and the object that I taste. Taste happens when our bodies and that which we taste blur. Appreciating this requires that we slow down, really taking time to notice the small nuances of food. Well, like developing a well-cooked dish or fine wine, churches also have a Le Gois de Terror. What flavors do we give others? How do we reflect the strengths and needs of our place? In our time worshiping and serving together, do we give a flavor of hurry, impatience, and competitiveness? Or does Huguenot Road have a slower flavor, taking the needed time to, to know God, one another, and to know the needs of our neighbors? A slower terroir may not bring with it the quick gratification of fast food or fast growth, but like a slow stew, a community that has taken the time to know each other and its context offers complex flavors from the lives that mix to reveal what a redemptive community looks and tastes like. Doing so means being satisfied with the investment in a few people and places rather than in the many. It also means treating others in your community as having real value. And that takes time to discover. Discover that people have something they, that are unique about them and they have to give. Rather than seeing people as commodities to be exploited. One example is of our mission partners in Charlotte, the Family Tree. They, have a, they practice this at La Guard de Tour. Intent on reflecting the taste of their place, they are not in a hurry not set on becoming a big thing. And those of us who have worked with them know this firsthand. It isn't enough for them to know their neighbors and their neighborhood. They desire to invest in the lives of the mundane, the day-to-day, -day, instead of the flashy, because that is where trust is built and a real difference is made. It seems the commitment to this slow, small scale is a reflection of living in God's selfless love to others. Well, what do you think flavors our church today, our church here at Huguenot Road? What defines us and our congregation, and what gives us our distinctive taste? What, what about our Bible studies as we met this morning, or our small groups during the week? What is the choir's flavor when you get together on Wednesdays to practice and sing on Sundays? What do our guests in our larger community of Bon Air, Midlothian, and Richmond taste when they interact with Huguenot Road? The small seeds planted by a young girl in the book, Seed Folk, in a junky lot in Cleveland made a big difference in the flavor of the community around Gibbs Street. It changed the way the community related to each other and their neighborhood. Consider one more example from the book. Consider Amir, an Indian immigrant who was in the neighborhood and who ran a local fabric store and planted his own plot in the garden. His perspective gives us some perspective on what community looks like and what power it holds. He says, I grew eggplants, onions, carrots, and cauliflower. When the eggplants appeared in August, they were pale purple, a strange and eerie shade. When my wife would bring our little son, he was forever wanting to pick them. There was nothing else in the garden with that color. Very many people came over to ask about them and to talk to me. I recognized a few from the neighborhood. 
Not one had spoken to me before. And now how friendly they turned out to be. The eggplants gave them an excuse for breaking the rules and starting a conversation. How happy they seemed to have found this excuse, to let their natural friendliness out. Those conversations tied us together in the middle of the summer. In the middle of the summer, someone dumped a load of tires on the garden at night, as if it were still filled with trash. A man's four rows of young corn were crushed. In an hour, we had all the tires by the curb. We were used to helping each other by then. A few weeks later, early in the evening, a woman screamed down the block from the garden. A man with a knife had taken her purse. Three men from the garden ran after him. I was surprised I was one of them. Even more surprising, we caught him. Royce held the man to a wall with his pitchfork until the police arrived. I asked the others. None of us had ever chased a criminal before, and most likely we wouldn't have except near the garden. There, you felt part of a community. The garden found this out with Royce. He was young and black. He looked rather dangerous. People watched him and seemed to be relieved when he left the garden. Then he began spending more time there. We found out that he had a stutter, that he had two sisters, that he liked cats that roamed through the garden, and that he worked very well with his hands. Soon all the mothers were trying to feed him. How very strange it was to watch people who would have crossed the street if they had seen him coming just a few weeks before, now giving him vegetables, more than he could eat. In return, he watered for people who were sick and fixed fences and made other repairs. He might weed your garden or use the bricks from the building that was torn up down the block to make a brick path between your rows. He always pretended he hadn't done it. It was always a surprise. One felt honored to be chosen. He was trusted and liked, and famous after his exploit with the pitchfork. He was not a black teenage boy. He was Royce. In September, he and a Mexican man collected many bricks from up the street and built a big barbecue. I was in the garden on Saturday when the Mexican family drove up in a truck with a dead pig in the back. They built a fire, put a heavy metal spit through the pig, and began to roast it. A bit later, their friends began arriving. One brought a guitar, another played violin. They filled a folding table with food. Perhaps it was one of their birthdays, or perhaps no reason was needed for the party. It was beautiful weather, sunny but not hot. Fall was just beginning, and the garden was changing from green to brown. Those of us who had come to work felt the party spirit enter us. The smell of the roasting pig drifted out and called to everyone, gardeners or not. Soon the entire garden was filled. It was a harvest festival like those in India, though no one had planned it to be. People brought food and drinks and drums. I went home to get my wife and son. Watermelons from the garden were sliced open. The gardeners proudly showed off what they'd grown. We traded harvests, as we often did. And we gave food away, as we often did also. Even I, a businessman, trained to give away nothing, to always make a profit. The garden provided many excuses for breaking that particular rule. Many people spoke to me that day. Several asked where I was from. One old woman, Italian, I believe, said she had admired my eggplants for weeks and told me how happy she was to meet me. She praised them and told me how to cook them and asked all about my family. But something bothered me. Then I remembered. A year before, she'd claimed that she'd received the wrong change in my store. I was called out to the register. 
She'd gotten quite angry and called me, despite her own accent, a dirty foreigner. Now that we were so friendly with each other, I dared to remind her of this. Her eyes became huge. She apologized to me over and over again. She kept saying, Back then, I didn't know it was you. A peculiar community makes a lasting difference for the good in the lives of those who belong. Its desire is to know God and, to turn, and in turn share God's shocking love with the world. It starts within the community, within a particular place and community, with care and compassion for its own, and then reaches out to do the same for people who it doesn't even know yet. It is difficult because it requires self-sacrifice rather than self-indulgence. But it is worth it because in such a community we find what we were made to be, the image of Christ, for the glory of God and the sake of God's creation. If you are interested in getting in on this peculiar community that we call Huguenot Road Baptist Church, or if you want to start in fir a first and in earnest a, a friendship with God, our pastor will be up front to be glad to, be meet, to meet with you as we sing our hymn of invitation. you as we sing together. Matthew, thank you for your words of encouragement and for a message to help each of us understand the importance of community. And if God's speaking to you today to unite with this local community of faith, I'd love to talk with you about that and pray with you as we sing together Amazing Grace. saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to my fears relieve. 
Chris and John, it has been our privilege and joy as a church family to walk with you and then today to baptize you into this local church family. We're delighted that you are here as, as God has led you all the way from New York to be a part of this local church here at Huguenot Road. And today, on, on behalf of the congregation, we present each of you a baptismal certificate that is yours to keep in a safe place, a, a place where you can go back and, and have a time to look back onto not only your walk with Christ, but today in your spiritual lives. And Chris, the Lord bless you. And John, the Lord bless you. God bless you. And after the worship service, we would invite you all to come and extend the right hand of fellowship to Chris and John, welcoming them here at Huguenot Road. Y'all can seat right over there next to Matthew, and Amanda's going to bring our time of response. There are lots of ways to respond to the ways that you hear God speaking to you when you're in this room, and God speaks to us in times when we're not in this room, too. And a couple of the ways that you can engage with your community around you are, um, this is my blue bucket, and in my blue bucket, we have collected loose change and spare change this morning. We participate with a lot of other faith communities in the area to support CHASM, which is Chesterfield and Colonial Heights, something, something M. I don't know what all the letters stand for, but it's a clearinghouse of, for social ministry, and so we help people who need help with your utilities or their rent or other things. And so we don't keep cash here. We send all of our, we pool all of our money because our money, all God's people's money together, do more together than they would separately. So as you leave today, if you have spare change in your pocket or um, your purse or your wallet, if you want to drop that in there, Becca Sasser and her mom are going to be standing in the back holding this bucket. And um, Chasm asked for participating congregations to take a spare change offering to help them as they are helping members of our community who need that. Another way that you can respond to God's call to help in our community is to bring backpacks and